we're here today with IOA, Insurance Office of America. Um, we've got Jason Levin and Erica Diaz, and I was so excited to have our pre-call, um, and I was like, oh man, we need to get this on tape, but um, <laughs> these guys are super knowledgeable about a space that's uh, rapidly evolving. Um, so um, with that, uh, why don't you guys do self-intros here? <laughs> Yeah, I'll give a quick one. Uh, my name is Erica Diaz-Joseph. I'm, I'm the cyber practice leader at IOA. Um, I've been at IOA for uh, about 10, maybe 11 months now. I don't know. Um, great company. My background is in cyber claims and cyber underwriting. All right. Well, welcome. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Uh, my name is Jason Levin. I'm a producer and risk advisor at Insurance Office of America. I work with lots of different type of businesses on several different exposures that they deal with, uh, and cyber being one of them. I'm lucky to have experts in, in my organization like Erica to help me along and make sure that our clients are getting the cutting edge products that are available and making sure that they're correctly covered and have the protection that they need. Awesome. Well, we're happy to have you both here for sure. Happy to be here. Happy to be right, here. Zach, you're up. Uh, for those of you who don't already know, my name is Zach Keeney. I am a co-founder with Fort Mesa. I'm our director of channel sales. Prior to my time with Fort Mesa, I owned my own restaurant franchise. Um, so I bring the people process element of cybersecurity to our team. Um, and I'm happy to be here as well. And um, I guess I'm the geekiest one of the bunch here. Um, <laughs> Ben You're pretty in. good at process too, man. Don't say ben, <laughs> ben in cybersecurity a long time um, in corporate America, ran my own MSP, worked with other MSPs, started my own cybersecurity practice, but, um, you know, started Fort Mesa to really try to impact the the world in a larger way. Uh, you know, when you're building software, we have the opportunity to take that cybersecurity experience and um, deliver it up to IT providers and enterprises to help them do things like prepare for getting insured. Um, and just one point that I want to make on that, Matt says he's the geekiest one, but I think he's the only one on the call who was owned a music festival and ran a music festival. So, <laughs> wow. Come on now. Come on now. Music, music's a pretty geeky endeavor oh, as well. Let's <laughs> music's geeky. Why is music geeky? Come I on. could get, if music is geeky, then you and I might be up there on the, on the geek charts together. Yeah. All I right. Always, well, I always have my drumsticks nearby. Oh, look at that. Well, we'll have to introduce you to Matt Koenig. He, uh, he, oh yeah, we got to put those two together. He's got drum. He, he carries the drumsticks in the live stream too, right? Yeah, yeah he did. <laughs> awesome. Well, should All we right, jump so, into the control, or did I? Miss yeah. That? So, uh, on that note of geekiness, um, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about a geeky thing. Um, so, <laughs> oh, let me let me do the actual intro here. I'm really uh, you off like me base. Today. Yeah. <laughs> So service provider management, um, some people call this third party risk. Um, so, you know, in, in organizations that have an information space, um, it lives in file cabinets, it lives on your computers. Now it lives in SaaS providers, like you've got Office 365 and OneDrive or Google, Google Docs. Um, but there's all sorts of service providers out there that are you know, have third-party control or um, 
access to your data. They have a relationship with your data. They can impact your your information security. So think about things like QuickBooks Online, right? Intuit's just like got all your financials and your account numbers, right? Your your bank, and we, we want to trust our banks, right? They do invest a lot in security, but they've got a complete financial record of all your customers and what's flowing where, right? Um, and, and in addition to that, of course, that's where your money is. Um, uh, we've got things like cell phone providers. These are these are things that people don't always think of as as service providers, but I like these examples because it helps stretch our brains thinking about, okay, my yeah. business exists here. What surrounds my business in the information sphere? And should I be concerned about that security? How should I be concerned about that security? This should impact things like vendor selection. It should impact things like how much do you trust a vendor and what data should you let them have access to? Um, and it can it can impact um, your own your own risk assessment or your own risk um, profile, which you know m- might mean you need to spend more to compensate for a vendor that's maybe not as secured as well as they should be, or it might mean you can't get insurance because you're depending on third parties that are untrustworthy. Um, I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper here, and I'm going to look at the individual components of this area. So. Service provider management, um, we're looking at um, some practices defined by the Center for Internet Security's control list. Um, it's, it's, it's control 15, and it has 15.1 through 7. And these are different levels of service provider management practice that uh, an organization that's trying to protect their security should be going through. Um, and you'll see that there's three columns on the right, IG1, IG2, and IG3, and the guidance is a little more nuanced than this, but IG1 is for small organizations or organizations at, at low risk using very simple systems. IG2, you know, you have your own IT, um, you've got maybe some customized software, um, you need to go a little bit deeper into your security and your management of third-party risk, and then IG3, um, if you're a business that is regulated by the government, you know, you, there are legal constraints around how you can deal with data or failure of your business can impact human safety. So air, healthcare, right? In those spaces, you know, we need to go a little bit deeper here. So um, I'm just going to read through them. And then I would love to just hear, you know, you, you guys want to share some stories about this because I, I know everyone here on this call um, this is an area that fills our days, right? Well, we've so, all got a different angle on it yeah. as well, which is interesting. 15.1, like at a basic level, have a list of your service providers. I know that sounds like not a very complicated thing, um, but if someone asks you where your cyber risk is, where's your cyber liability, where is your information risk? If you don't have a list, you've probably never gone through the exercise of figuring out where your information even is. And we need to do this on the device and data side, but we also need to do this on the service provider side. So again, you know, I gave those examples earlier, cell phone provider, online SaaS, right? This could be a business process outsourcer where there's not a direct data flow, um, like from a systems perspective, but maybe you're emailing back and forth, or maybe you're sending physical things back and forth, right? And they have an impact on your cybersecurity as well. Um, it could also be the guys that come inside your space um, or women that are maybe not 
maybe not part of your business processes, but they're taking care of your building. And I'm thinking about the cleaners. I'm thinking about the people who take care of HVAC, right? These are all people that impact your business and they have access to your information sphere, which does have a physical place. It's your office or your home. Um, so that's IG1, the basics. Everyone should have the list of service providers and that's easy. You, you can put it in Excel, you can use a product like ours. Um, don't use post-its, right? This should be someplace that if someone asks you for the list, you can give it to them. Um, and you should be updating it on, on at least an annual basis. Um, although I, I think a lot, of, a lot of people would argue a couple of times a year or maybe even quarterly would be a good time to go through and assess your vendor list. Um, from there, if you're sort of a, a mid-maturity um, on the security scale, what you should be doing is having a policy so how do you treat those providers? Do you assess them? Do you have guidelines for um, how to select them, right? Do you have a, a process that you go through when you, when you hire someone? Like, do you do named access? Like, do you ask for people's identities before you let them in your building? And I know that sounds like a funny thing, but like a lot of companies in the world, they have the cleaners coming at night. They have no idea who they are, right? They just all share like a code, right? And your physical office has like physical laptops or desktops or whatever, printers. Um, you, you should absolutely have some kind of policy around how you establish those, those relationships. Classify them, um, usually by sensitivity, but there's other ways of classifying on 15.3. So this organization is highly critical or it has access to highly confidential data. This organization's maybe a little less critical. Um, they don't have access to, to sensitive data. This organization is maybe inconsequential, but go through a process where you classify them. And ideally, this is just another column on your list, right? You've already made the list of service providers. Just write down the sensitivity. Have that conversation with the people in your business. Um, and then the, the final one here at the middle level is um, to really look at what the contractual teeth are between you and each of those providers. There's probably a contract. If there's not, you should get a contract. Um, See what those contractual obligations are. Are they required to inform you if they have a breach? Right? That's a super important question. Are they required to even protect your data? Have you signed an NDA with them? Those are those are the things that you should be lo really looking at in the contract. Um, and then, you know, for the very um, sensitive environments where, um, again, impact to human safety, right, or government regulated data, which includes financial services, you need to assess those service providers. And that's where we where this uh, terminology third-party risk really like became a product category, right? There's companies out there that their whole job is to go assess these third-party vendors. And we actually had um, Carla from Orpheus on here a few weeks ago, and yep. she's in that business. And there's a lot of companies doing this. And it's really important that you evaluate your vendors to understand how safe they are. Um, and then you also monitor them <laughs> like on an ongoing basis. Like you don't just you don't just evaluate them when you hire them and then forget about them for five years, right? Um, and then, of course, when you're done with that provider, did you terminate the contract? Did you ask them to destroy the data? Did you take away the keys, right? Um, or did you just give them, or did you allow them to keep their login and not change their password? Yeah. Hope they decide not to use it. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, which of these sections do you determine how much access they have and what they have access to? You know, I, I think that all these controls are tangled up together. And um, from a security control perspective, I would normally look at that in the access control section. Um, this is really because all of those people at the service provider, they're just people, 
right? And yes, they're yeah. companies, but they're also people. When it comes to access control, you should be thinking about it. Minim minimum access control, least common access, the same way you do everyone else that accesses the system. But there are some particular things that because they're another company, these are special things you need to do because they don't work for you, right? And and this is what end enterprises should be doing for their MSPs. And I know we have a lot of MSPs on the call. So um, I think a lot of MSPs get dragged through the proverbial muck through this process um, because, or they feel like they're being dragged through the muck because they don't have good answers to some of these questions, right? Um, particularly in the, you know, assessing service providers. But, you know, if a if, a, if an MSP or a service provider has cleaned their own house, they've got it all documented, it's really easy to fly through these processes. Um, I, 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 sorry, Matt, but I, I think 15.1 is interesting um, because we, we recently did um, a, a relatively early control um, that was just around building an asset list altogether or, or me, you know, measuring and noting your assets altogether. 15.1 is a recall to that. And it's interesting to me um, if you want to think about it in, in like the largest scale looking down. The first step here when you're like measuring the risk level of your third party service providers is, again, do we even know who they are and do we even have a list of them uh, to look at? Um, and the only reason I want to point it out is because a lot of the times in these hyper-technical fields, it can be spooky in where do we start. Um, but I think the simplicity of a lot of these starting points might bring ease to those people who maybe feel, you know, that nervousness or that uh, fearfulness, especially when we get into control number 15 and it's a little bit more confusing. We're still starting at a very basic place. Um, and I think that's an important note. Yeah. It, and it's, if it wasn't clear when I said it in the geekiest way possible, this is not an all or nothing thing. These, the reason this is broken into seven pieces is this is a maturity ladder. You start at the top. Well, you know, this is top down, right? You start at the top and you go down and until you've improved your maturity to the point where you're quite mature. But as an organization, you may hit a point where you say, you know what, we're happy with this level of security investment, right? Or it might um, be, this is the right level of security investment. Right. Yeah. right. And speaking of risk, Matt, I mean, when insurance underwriters, which is Erica's background, look at who they want to offer products to and at what price, having the type of diligence that, that's involved in completing the type of exercise that you just talked about is huge. People like Erica, who would be on the underwriting side of the desk, and who want to make a decision on, you know, what account do I really want to go after? What am I comfortable with? And who do I want to have a relationship with? That type of diligence goes a very long way. And definitely for like a lot of your audience, a lot of your clients are MSTs. They're going to definitely be highly scrutinized when they go out for cyber insurance. And vendor management is definitely going to be at the top of the list. Matt, can I ask a stupid question? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, I, I believe I feel you like want a stupid answer. <laughs> I'm okay with a stupid answer on a Friday. <laughs> uh, I think vendor management, third party risk, some of these things like are, are a step outside of that complexity level that some people are, are normally used to when it comes to cybersecurity and looking at their own systems. Why is third party risk um, something to be considered? How can a service provider 
that I'm working with that has risky procedures? How can they damage my business? Um, and why would I be worried about that as an MSP or somebody that's looking to get insurance? So I've got lots of answers, but we've got people experienced in claims. So yeah, I can actually give an example. And this is I'm going way back so it's like 20, maybe 18. But there was um, a, a small business, they, you know, outsourced their IT, and they did have an MSP that handled everything. The person came in and, you know, did everything remote. The client had a ransomware. Turns out they didn't have any requirement for MFA. And so anything that infects the MSP could also then be propagated onto this client network. And that's exactly what happened. So um, that's just an example of ensuring that you've got the proper safeguards in place when you are outsourcing something like the security of your network. Yeah, and that there's a lot of high profile um, we I, in my in my industry we try not to use the the B word the breach word um, mm -hmm. we we use the term incident um, incident is the name for something that you can quantify and understand and have like reasonable rational actions about right to control the risk breach is the word you use when you you've totally screwed up right <laughs> but there were some high profile breaches um, and you know I think probably everyone here even though it was probably more than five years ago. Uh, remembers the target hack, right? Yeah. Um, and that was exactly this situation where a third party had access to sensitive systems that were secured from internal um, risks, but were not secured from third party risks. And they even actually had MFA on their on their user accounts, right? Their internal user accounts, but they didn't have MFA on the third party account. And that's how an attacker was able to get in. They came in through the through the uh, first, they broke into the uh, the third party. They were um, a facilities contractor, and then and then you know from there they had um, you know they got a hold of the password, and because there was no F MFA, they got free ranging access and infected all of the uh, credit card terminals, right? Um, so that's one example, right? But the reality is, from a macro econ perspective, I, I so I was sitting in front of some someone from Gartner, and it was nearly 10 years ago. And they were trying to talk about this idea of like, the fact that like, companies are either born in the cloud, or they're going to be moving to the cloud. But like, there's this idea of ignoring the cloud is just not going to pan out in the long term. And to emphasize the point, the example she she pointed out, and I love this one is 100 years ago, did you know most of corporate America, if they used electricity, they had departments of electricity. Can you imagine like having an electricity department in like an average company these days? Um, it seems I ridiculous. Really right? I, I, you say that, Matt, but I kind of think that maybe my section of our organization feels <laughs> a little like the electricity department. Well, so there's parts of a business and particularly the parts that are not your core value. Right. When you're using IT that 10 other companies that look exactly like you are using the exact same IT, it is sort of ridiculous, actually, that you're managing that yourself. Right. Like someone else should just be managing that for all 10 companies. It's not like it's a competitive edge. Right. Um, and it reduces the cost for everyone and, the, and increases the quality to just move that out. Right. And that's why we have electrical grids. And that's why we depend on third party providers to manage our information sphere. But um, unlike the electrical grid that's regulated by the government, um, you know, our industry, I'm, I'm you know, I, f I feel like I'm in the IT provider industry, um, even though we're in vendor space. 
we're largely unregulated right now. So, um, you know, we do just need to do our due diligence in making sure, you know, as, as end customers or as service providers that third-party risk or as, as we call it um, in, you know, in CIS, service provider management is, is part of our risk thinking. So with that, um, we're, we're having Cyber Insurance Day. Um, what could be better on Friday, right? Yeah. <laughs> Should we do a claim nightmare story? Do you guys have a claim nightmare? So I, do we have like a – let's not talk about um, like loss gone wrong, right? Because I think a lot of our listeners like have been through some kind of incident where they're like, oh, there was a loss event, right? But I think that you guys run into like – the claim nightmare of, hey, this person bought the wrong product or they yeah. didn't understand the product they were buying or they misapplied and the claim that should have been a sure thing, like just wasn't able to take care of the, the problem for the end customer. Like, is that, yeah, you guys- Like a denied claim? Yeah, that's yeah. such a great segue. Um, the one thing about cyber insurance that I would start by saying is that it is changing all the time. There are new modules of coverage all the time. And all these insurance companies that get involved um, like to call these modules different things. Uh, cyber extortion might be ransomware for somebody else. Social engineering might be phishing for somebody else. Um, and you know, there's always been a coverage out there that's been available and that we've been selling to clients since I've been doing this, which is over 20 years at this point, called crime insurance. Well, where better uh, or where, where would you think that something would be covered when something cyber related happens? And people say, well, I have crime insurance. Yeah, but like you just said, Matt, that's not the correct insurance um, because that is more physical loss of merchandise or cash or something along those lines. But I think the misconception that, you know, their current insurance package has what they need is probably one of the biggest misnomers out there right now. Um, it is extremely important to have a segregated cyber insurance policy in order to make sure that you're picking up all the correct coverage parts. A lot of the providers right now, the small business insurance providers, all the way up to, you know, um, providers that insure people up to $50 million sales, in, you know, businesses, they will include what I would consider token amounts of coverage, or if you want to call it Diet, uh, diet cyber liability, you know, these little snippets that are out there and people say, well, I have data breach. Well, I have, you know, what I need. I have a $50,000 limit there. Maybe they don't even know their limits. Um, but to have a separate policy gives you comprehensive protection. And if that's not something that's been looked at, it should definitely be looked at. And you brought up, you know, some of the, we can all talk about the horror stories on the large, huge businesses that we hear have suffered cyber attacks. The new news is uh, it's not just large business anymore. It's mostly small business. And that's where we're seeing these things take place. Having a partner that can identify um, where your system might be penetrated and then having gone through an underwriting exercise with an insurance provider via application and requesting that coverage is a great way to start and to figure out where your vulnerabilities are and then to properly protect those vulnerabilities because insurance companies have been and always will be for profit. So if they see a vulnerability, they're not going to offer coverage for that part. And it gives it gives people an opportunity to fix that hole. So I actually have a nice example for what you mentioned. Well, 
Hold, hold, hold on. So it, just for, so the, I, I've heard some jargon here, some industry jargon. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> let's just rewind back to the beginning, which, which I get it. Cause like we're deep in this space, but um, you talked about it's, well, first of all, it sounds like particularly small business by um, insurance buyers that are really bearing the brunt in terms of um, loss, like the size of the loss per employees in the business, I know they're they're at the high end, right? Per per the number of employees in the business, small businesses are having the the highest loss size, right? Because they have less protections in place. Um, and and large business, even though they're larger targets, has been they've been doing risk management exercises for a long time, right? And in the small businesses, um, they need navigators, and I think by default, a lot of them are going to their hometown. Um, you know, whoever sponsored the Little League team, right? But whoever sponsored the Little League team may be an expert in finding a home or, or a car policy or a simple GL. But you mentioned something, um, I think you said a segregated policy, right? And I think that I know when you walk into some of these agencies, they just, they say, well, you've got a, you've got a cyber like unit or a rider on your, on your, on your CGL, right? So explain what you mean by a segregated policy and, and why why small businesses need to care. Yeah, that's that's great. I'm happy you're giving me the opportunity to clarify that because we do get a little jargony from time to time. And uh, for more fun, I can go through insurance acronyms if we have extra time. <laughs> about 1,200 of them. Um, but that's exactly right, Matt. Um, you might have on your, uh, on your business policy an identi- identity recovery endorsement, which means some small policy language that has to do with identity recovery or data breach or cost of notification. So if you do experience a data breach, you know, you may have a, a statute requirement that you notify all these people. But the depth of those coverage parts and how that policy language is constructed and the limits that are offered are not as extensive as if you have a distinct, separate cyber insurance policy in which you get broader policy language and you get higher limits. And I'll tell you, if you're dealing with a, a data breach and you have all your customer information on a machine, just the, the cost of notification and offering credit monitoring, you are now out of coverage and you haven't even started yet, um, let alone the cyber business interruption, the what it cost your business and customers and business because you were down for that time period that's not a snippet on your on your commercial insurance policy program that you already have. If you don't have a designated separate policy, um, you very well may be underinsured and, and badly. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. When I was uh, a claims adjuster at HSB, a lot of those claims were, you know, reinsurance claims. And so I was adjusting claims for companies that had a rider on their CGL or their BOP. And a lot of times they didn't even realize that they had any coverage at all. So I've seen coverage, you know, um, limits from 10,000, you know, to, you know, one to 5 million. Um, But I definitely ran into a lot of situations where because this is just an endorsement that's been tacked on, you know, there are just not enough limits to, you know, pay for the full cost of forensics or the full cost of um, notification, for example. I actually had um, an insured that um, I felt very bad for. He had a small business and he had that business for about 30 years and he was in healthcare. 
um, he happened to have data for every patient he had ever served. <laughs> and his limits were um, abysmal. Um, luckily, uh, HSB partners with a lot of great, um, you know, vendors, and we were able to work something out. And it turned out, you know, after it was investigated, because not every ransomware is going to involve data access or data theft, this particular healthcare provider was lucky enough not to have to provide that notification. But they definitely walked away from that claim with the pretty hefty bill that they'd have to take care of. Yeah. And for those of you who thought I was kidding about the acronyms that I were, I were going with, CGL was commercial general liability, BOP <laughs> is business owner's policy, and HSB, like and HSB is Hartford Steam Boiler. So, so they're just HSB. BOP, is, Bop I, is also a hell of a baby song. But I, I didn't even hear them, Jason, because I'm know. like, but, but you're right. Um, you know, so I, you know, it's funny, like people get commercial general liability. It's like your basic, I'm a small business owner policy. It's where you start before you start branching out against mm -hmm. um, and looking at things that are specific to your business type, specific risks of your business. And and the reason we get a commercial general liability policy is mostly because of the bodily item, right? And it's because um, under, is it every state in our union here um, requires that we take care of people that are out of places of work, right? And take care of our employees when they're when they're on the job and it's like a million dollars is the standard starter policy right so small business owners are buying a million dollars of bodily right and they think that's normal and and they feel sometimes overconfident that the 50 or 100 thousand dollar cyber rider is is going to take care of them because and it was an add-on right because they think well i i've only spent like you know, 30,000 last year on IT, 100,000 sounds like it would be plenty. But the reality is when something that has a cyber angle on it, right, mm -hmm. impacts your business, it can destroy it all, right? Exactly. They can run with your whole credit rating, all your customer list. They can steal all of your data. They can impersonate you. Um, they can ruin <laughs> yes, your they, reputation. They can ruin your reputation. Your yeah. Um, and, and lots of other creative ways that attackers either learn to um, extract um, value from you and they'll they'll do $20 of damage to extract a dollar of, of value, right? Or $100 of damage to extract a dollar of value. Um, or sometimes they just don't care. You know, they're not in the business of taking care of your systems. Um, and, and, and then it you've got the regulatory random. response requirements. We're, we're talking about... Um, you guys are following this uh, four-day um, breach notification news, right? So just imagine you've had a breach with the B word because you didn't take care of it. It's not an incident because you didn't have any plans. You didn't have the systems in place, but you realized, wow, things went bad. I wasn't taking care of it. And, okay, I got to go hire the cyber person. You go call your insurer to put them on notice. Well, hopefully you put them on notice, right? Um, and maybe they'll have a pre-negotiated rate. Maybe they won't, but just imagine if you call up a cyber forensic shop and oh. you're like, I'm about to die, right? And the government's forcing me to do a thing and it's all on the line. And can I negotiate price with you, please? Right. Um, I, I know what the forensic shops do. They're at like 10x price because they're like, they have you over 15 barrels. Yeah. And <laughs> at that point, you know, if you have a problem, a cyber incident breach, if you have that problem and that's the time that you're going to go on your phone and Google, you know, to find out who you're, who you can call, who's going to help you right away. You're in a lot of trouble. 
is what it comes down to. Um, the good specialty insurers that we're talking about in the specific cyber policies have experts that are waiting that you can talk to and you can ask them, hey, here's what I think might have happened in our system. How do I determine whether it was a simple breach and I need to deal with it? How do I determine whether my customer um, my customer information was was out there and and breached? How do I determine the next step and whether it was disseminated? Because that brings up a whole other statutory requirement on offering credit monitoring. Um, not that's not the time when that happens to start saying, okay, I've never thought of this before. Here's what I need to deal with, but. Um, a good cyber provider is going to have that type of service and a good agency is going to bring you to that to that provider to get you a comprehensive solution. So yeah, a lot of cyber carriers do have 24-7 um, hotlines where at any time at all you could call in and have access to an adjuster. And sometimes it's really important so that you can proceed with your remediation. Sometimes you have to get some permission or not permission. I would say you have to get prior approval. Um, before you engage a vendor, if you want it to be covered by the policy. And this is even on the endorsement policies that might be attached to a right. bot, they still have those same provisions in place. So it is important to, obviously, if you've got a business, you have at least an insurance agent, um, call your insurance agent and you might have, you know, an endorsement, more coverage than you, you know, thought that you had initially. And certainly you're, you know, much, much safer when you have a standalone monoline cyber policy where you've given thought to all of the different coverages and trusted, you know, your your agent to help you with all of that. Um, insurance is very good at helping you get out of a situation as cleanly as possible, because the last thing an insurance company wants is for you to have a data breach that results in a class action and triggers the policy and potentially costs another million dollars. Mm -hmm. So, um, they definitely have experts in place with negotiated rates um, that already know how insurance works and can take you through it pretty quickly. Yeah, I've seen ransomware situations resolve in one day. Yeah, Erica, that's a great point, and that goes beyond cyber. I mean, if I was gonna if I was gonna amplify what you're saying, I would say notification to the insurance company, no matter what coverage line you're talking about: CGL, commercial general liability, property insurance, crime insurance, umbrella, whatever. One of the very important parts is making sure that your agency and carrier know that you've had an incident and to determine whether a policy needs to be activated or or notice of loss needs to be created. Because if you go too far down, what would be categorized as adjusting your own claim, you're giving an insurance company a way to wiggle out. So notification is huge. So America. this is um, good answers on why we care about insurance. Um, and why we should maybe, you know, like, I don't want to bash, you know, an agency that just, you know, doesn't get a lot of requests for cybersecurity, mm -hmm. um, you know, policies, but clearly having specialists has value. Yeah. But let's talk about the how people get insured. So I, I've got this thing up here, right? There it is. So yeah. I'm, I'm a CISSP. That means I have a, a, a risk assessor credential. Um, and, um, uh, the, the way I was trained to think about cyber insurance is it's a vehicle for risk transfer. You know, my 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 um, business, so to speak, my skill set 
that I've been trained in, that I've been educated in, that I'm a credential in is to, is to help organizations assess and manage their risk. And yeah. there's lots of different ways of managing risk. And, you know, we get pretty geeky about it sometimes, but transferring the risk is the simplest one to do, but only if you do it right, right? So a, exactly. a risk transfer is when you understand your risk and you, you, you take a piece of it that you decide you don't want to own and you, instead of doing something about it, you pay someone else to just own that risk and it's great um, and you've convinced me but I know that um, our, so our partners, our, our service providers and their clients are all asking for cyber insurance mm-hmm. um, or sometimes think they're covered and, and they need to be educated by their service provider. But there's a lot of difficulty in the how because this has changed a lot just the last two years, right? Um, the types of organizations that are now being long formed, the capacity that's in place for different types of, or and I'm using you know more more cyber or more more insurance jargon here, the capacity which is mm-hmm. like the, the the these insurance industries' ability to absorb risk for a specific um, type of risk, um, it's changed a lot the last couple of years. I know that six months ago, you know, people were freaked out because they were getting declined everywhere. It, like people couldn't get through renewals, um, and from a service provider perspective, it was scary because. You know, your your end client just invested all this money with you and they thought that they'd be able to get a policy. And then all of a sudden they go out to get that a policy and they're getting denied everywhere. So I know that the the process here is something that a good agency can help you with. But let's just discuss what that process looks like. So it begins with, of course, the client um, looking for a renewal. Right. Which is not so simple because the requirements change every year. or an organization maybe for the first time deciding they want to really take care of this in a, in a comprehensive way, they for the first phone call might be to their agency, but, but it also equally might be to their service provider to say, I'm looking for insurance. I know this might be difficult to get. Can you help me? Yeah. Right. What, what, types of, what do they need to do calls? to prepare? What do they need before they call? Well, um, I want to just address like your unique, you know, client base. MSPs have had a really tough time with cyber insurance over the past couple of years. And it's, you know, it's not the same experience that I think a lot of different classes of business have been having. You know, we've been hearing a lot, I think, in the news or maybe just in my cyber world about, you know, uh, catastrophic risk, you know, supply chain loss. These are concerns that um, a lot of carriers have. You know, if a managed services provider has a ransomware that also impacts their clients. And I won't use any names, but there is some software that, you know, that all the companies use. I mean, an insurance company could be on the hook for claims from not just the managed service provider, but all of those different clients. And I, I certainly saw that even as a claims adjuster, and it happens all the time. It happened um, with SolarWinds, for example. Um, and SolarWinds is a great example of how when you are a managed services provider, you have this additional risk that has to be assessed. So not to get too deep, and I'll let Jason, you know, take how you go about getting the insurance. I just want to acknowledge, yep. I know it's been tough for MSPs, insurance is out there, but of course, underwriters are more scrutinizing for this type of risk. Yeah, thanks, Erica. Insurance is definitely out there. You know, you go back a couple of years. And I remember we had a, a provider of cyber insurance that we would go to quotes for, and it was like four questions and that was it. And with those four questions, we were able to give an entire suite of coverage, very reasonably priced. Um, flash forward two years from there. And if you didn't have specific um, 
MFA, and if you couldn't answer every security questions on an eight-page application correctly, you were simply declined. And a lot of the business that I was talking about that had the three questions got long renewal applications that if, if they weren't filled out correctly, then your coverage was non-renewed. Uh, flash forward to June, which is the first time Erica and I saw in an insurance journal that for the first time in at least two years, cyber had leveled off and had actually had a 10% decrease in what rates were being quoted. So it's all a market cycle, just like everybody's business has some sort of market cycle. Um, I would say now there's no more three questions to get a quote, um, but unless you're specifically in the, in the technology, cyber, SEO optimization, digital marketing, um, those are very long applications. But other than that, it's become very reasonable again. I think, you know, we went from one side where it's way too easy to one side where it's way too hard. And I think we kind of have a happy median right now. And insurance companies, to your point, Matt, have a little more capacity than they have. They feel like they have it under control. They've gotten a lot of the bad accounts off their books and, and they're kind of rearing to go again. Having said that, um, there are certain things that they're not going to quote if you don't have, because no insurance company, you know, just like, uh, you know, if we were talking about house insurance, homeowners, if you have a fire pit inside of your house, who wants to insure that? Nobody wants to insure that. As opposed to you have a house that's made out of cinder blocks, has a sprinkler system and everything that's needed, everybody wants to insure that. It's the same thing with cyber insurance. If you don't have what they feel is the baseline necessity in order to keep your data and your system safe, they just won't offer coverage. Um, but it's very important to be with an expert agency, and I'm not saying we're the only ones, but that has their finger on the marketplace um, because it's it's changing all the time. And so, if, go ahead. Well, so I I think at this point. Um, most of our audience knows that they need help getting through this process <laughs> and they come to us because we help with the technical, um, planning around, you know, managing internal risk, but, yeah. you know, uh, managing risk is particularly if you have insurance, there's a shared responsibility, you know, you, you need to handle things from the inside, but then, um, and, you know, the insurer will take care of their end, but they'll only take care of your end, their end if you're taking care of your end. But those those requirements are different for different types of business, right? Like, yes, uh, like a like a healthcare business yeah. is right. going to be different than, um, you know, a, an auto mechanic. Right. Or exactly. um, financial services is going to be different than maybe a SaaS company. Um, yeah, if, you're a, if you're a manufacturer of bar stools, um, they're not going to be as worried as if you are doing SEO optimization and you're in other people's systems, um, you know, doing digital marketing or, or whatever. The simple rule of thumb on it is if you're in the tech space, uh, it's going to be a little more difficult than you're if you're not in the tech space. If you're a shoe store, it's going to be really darn easy. Um, maybe even if you're an accounting office, it's not that bad as long as you have some type of protection of your data. But if you're a, a large technology firm, it's going to be a little harder and then it's going to get a little more complex as well because the lines between different coverage parts when that is your business um be, it becomes important to to design a program that has the cyber liability general liability and professional liability all with the same carrier so that you don't end up in a situation where they say no that's your claim no that's your claim um there are specialty products for media companies where the cyber and professional are together. But my point being, um, it, 
there's a solution for everybody out there. Um, it's, it's just a matter of finding the right product and finding the right underwriters. Right. Finding the I right product. No company is uninsurable, but it will be a matter of, you know, what limits and coverages and premium you'll have to, to get, because of course, risk transfer is very important, but it, it's a shared responsibility, like you mentioned. And just, I also just have to say, because I've been a claims adjuster, we look for a way to cover the claim. You know, a lot of insurance companies um, certainly are not trying to get out of paying for a claim. I know it feels like that, and I hear that a lot. Um, and it seems intuitive, but truly we're looking for coverage and sometimes some of the, you know, um, sometimes the policy has particular wording. It usually isn't going to require something from the, the, the insured. Once you have your policy, there's your contract. We can ask for whatever we want before then to determine whether or not we're comfortable taking on this risk. But that's your contract. If one of those, if one of the coverage triggers happens, you're entitled to exactly what yeah. the limits are for that. Yeah, we have a qu question okay. here. Do we want to address this? Yeah, I see that. Um, Ryan, to answer your question, we do all lines of insurance at Insurance Office of America. Depending on what your needs are, you might have different. We might have different experts for you. For instance, I write a lot of different type of business insurance policies in addition to cyber, and I reach out to uh, experts like Erica to help me design the correct products when I have a specific need. Um, but no, Insurance Office of America has uh, we insure businesses uh, among other things. So, well, I, I think the second part's really important, yeah. right? Because yeah. this is something a lot so, of people ask. Yeah, so, should they be shopping for cyber the same way they shop for everything else? Like, should those be together? Is there an advantage to together? You should have it all with the same agency, is my opinion, because you want your agent to be able to figure out where the general liability stops, where the cyber starts, and maybe where the professional liability is. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same carrier, although in some situations it does make it better. Um, in other situations, it's it's better to segregate it away from carriers. Everybody's different. Um but it's important to recognize what the best plan is for each business. If you know, it might be wise to have your cybers um, with a different carrier than your general liability and your work comp, not a different agency, but a different carrier. So that God forbid something happens on the cyber front, it doesn't pollute the loss run of your, of the rest of your policies. That's one, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it would be if you're a tech service firm and your professional liability and your cyber liability, um, exposure kind of blurs together and there might be a little bit of overlap, then you probably want that with the same insurance company because you don't want them pointing at each other when the, when the, when the claim comes in and fighting so I, for whose responsibility is what. You I've could get a, a blended policy just on one form, miscellaneous professional liability or even technology liability together with the cyber. Yeah. Well, for, for MSPs, oftentimes that tech, you know, is combined, right? Um, yeah specifically MSPs, because they're in the business of like defending cyberspace, right? Right. Um, but I've got a couple of questions um, that I want to ask Erica, but before we get into the geeky stuff, Zach, you were, you had like a really thoughty I think I'm about finger. To, I think I'm going to steal your question here. So <laughs> okay. I do have some thoughty fingers. Uh, Erica, you were talking about contracts. Um, and, I, and I think this leads into an interesting, um, you were like, you said, once you have that policy that's your contract um 
we we had a, an interesting call uh, this week where we were we were having a conversation with somebody about about cyber insurance and and the market space, um, and they presented to us uh, a, another way people were kind of trying uh, trying to work their way around the problem. Um, and Matt, correct me if I'm misremembering, but warrants. Uh, well, war- warranties, and they're they're a little bit different from insurance because there's they're not necess- there's not necessarily an application process, right? You're, yeah, I, I know you know. I want to see her perspective. Yeah, well, well but warranties, warranties are usually excluded on cyber policies. Right. So I I think the the issue that we ran into was someone who was curious. You know, there's these cyber product, right? Like a product that's supposed to stop malware, right? And it, 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 they guarantee that they're going to stop the malware and they have a warranty attached to it. And they say, well, if malware, you know, if malware happens, um, as long as you did all the things that were correct, which, you know, is its own nightmare, um, we will cover you up to, and the example I saw was $1,000 per machine up to a, a million dollars aggregate, which sounds like a million dollars. Great. But when you look at that thousand dollars per machine, it's like, well, but that, you know, I'm not trying to protect a laptop. I'm trying to protect my business. Right. But yeah. I'm curious, are you guys seeing like how is that impacting claims processes and, and purchase cycles? Is this something that you guys hear about where people are, are buying technology that they think is a pre cyber insured because it comes with a warranty? No. Usually, uh, if I ever really quick, usually if I've ever had a claim where there's been um, an infection that was you know, propagated onto the network by a service provider, usually when we look at those agreements, there's mutual indemnification. So most uh, service providers are requiring indemnification. I I can't even imagine a cybersecurity company, a cybersecurity company that guarantees that you'll never have an incident. I mean, that's just run, walk, don't walk, run. You yeah, should nev- yeah, you should never be listening to anybody that's guaranteeing you something is or is not ever going to happen. Because that's <laughs> first of all, Caleb put a comment up. That's just a gimmick. I couldn't say it better. It was yeah, a- yeah. Thank you. You you so, took the. I couldn't but, say that mean. But I do I do see it frequently, and I think there's a lot well, of misunderstanding. And yeah, in, well, let me in- let me tell you something about that. So you have the thousand dollars per machine. You know, if something happens that renders your machine unusable. Well, what would what would come in that would actually render your machine unusable? Not a whole that that's not a huge cyber exposure. The exposure is what they get in, extract, and manipulate, and disseminate. Not that they broke that's, your laptop. That's where the value is. It's not yeah. your it's not your four hundred dollar gaming computer. Right, and here's the more. other thing: if you have a cyber policy that's been constructed correctly, there will be a limit in there specific to that already. There'll be you know, Erica, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's called bricking coverage, uh, which would cover For the, replacement. Yeah, which would be hardware if there were a hardware problem. So that a lot that's, of things came to mind because I and excuse my ignorance, I'm not sure. Is this a cyber policy you're referring to that is I, about malware, like malware software products that say if something gets through, we'll we'll oh. guarantee you or whatever. But here's the deal. The other part is having a good malware product on your machine is going to be a question that underwriters ask to begin with. They're going to, if you don't have some kind of protection and if you don't take the patches when they're necessary and you can't identify when it is, you're not going to get insurance. 
So those those things need to happen to begin with. Now, one thing going back, Matt, I wanted to mention is there are times that we're on the phone with a prospect or client, and we're also on the phone with their IT person or maybe even their outsourced IT provider, or they say, I need to complete this application, you know, with with and you know somebody who really knows what they're talking about and can tell me what kind of malware we have, what kind of patches we have, what kind of MFA we have. Um, and that's all necessary to to get the quotes in most cases. But what you're talking about is is pretty useless um, <laughs> co- compared to an insurance policy, a real insurance. That, policy. That's what I wanted you to say. What, what do they say in Tommy Boy when when he goes and gets the the box, the warranties on the box? Well, why isn't the warranty on the box? You know that <laughs> that whole conversation. What does it really matter? So. Um, I know, um, you know, our service providers are helping their customers through the, the application process. And of course, we tell them, look, don't don't attest to things for your end customer. They need to they need to put their own app in. Right. Um, but they, but they do ask for advice. Right. Um, and those service providers are often the ones that need to do the thing that that's required. Um, but I know that these days um, there are some requirements and I know MFA has been out there for a number of years and now it's even more important. Right. But there's some other things that are appearing on these policies that are just, you have to do this thing if you really want a, an automatic yes, right? So what are what are some of those things? You said these applications are getting shorter. So so the carriers must be correlating losses around some specific criteria these days, some, right? Some make or break points. I think ahead. it varies from carrier to carrier. And I think that there are um, certain insured tech carriers that are relying on technology to supplement some of the things they might have asked the question about. Um, a lot of insurance companies are still going to want to know that, you know, number one, you know everything, you know what your systems look like. So you've kept some sort of inventory. Um, and this goes to the CIS controls, right? But it's important to know that also you have access controls, right? MFA is important. And for whatever strange reason, I've seen lots of applications where there's MFA everywhere except admin accounts. I to, I will never understand that. Um, but, you know, the applications are sometimes going to get a little more intricate depending on how complicated the business is. There are still insurance companies that will, with very little information, provide insurance. And it truly just depends what you want from the policy, what kind of business you're running, um, et cetera. So the admin accounts one, I can answer that because I'm a tech geek. It's oh actually, my gosh, I would love to know. <laughs> it's hard, and here's why. Users are just using normal compu- normal apps on their computers, right? But admins have to log into all sorts of weird things like firewalls and network switches and special administrative servers. And those things can also require MFA, but it requires a huge project. You have to tie in all of those extraneous devices and services and systems into a single sign-on system. And the insurers are not asking the questions around, do you do federated login? Are you requiring that those connect, those federated systems are um, respecting role-based access controls? Like, because it would be like 10 questions long and it would be really complicated. So instead they ask. Applications are definitely out there. Yeah, some of them are. Some of the long forms, right, are asking questions around federated Mm -hmm. login and single sign-on. But you literally can't protect admin accounts unless you are doing all of those things. And this is why federated login and single sign-on are so important these days. Um, it's the reason why Okta's making tons of money. 
hand over fist right now, but there's plenty of other products on the marketplace to do that kind of thing. And if you're a Microsoft or a Google customer, guess what? Those, those platforms already do single sign-on. You just have to configure it with all of your systems. So, um, you know, there's work there for the service provider, and they skip them. They skip those things because it's easy, right? Because single sign-on's hard. It's, a, it's project work, uh, but it's important. Um, any other... Thank any you other, for that. It's been a mystery for me. <laughs> we're, we're running out of time, but I, I know people love the geeky, they got the geeky questions. <laughs> um, any other burning desires or maybe we should do last thoughts? Yeah, we can do last thoughts. So, um, I mean, clearly I feel the need to just, you know, make sure all, every single one of my partners has some kind of cyber navigator available to them that they can ask questions so clearly if an if an msp is already in the business you know of obtaining their own tech eno or cyber liability policy that agency and that carrier and that underwriter they're they're going to have an interest in really supporting that msp in supporting their end customers because you know if that end customer's breached because of something the msp done that's going to be um that's going to be on the carrier's risk pool right so yeah. Um, that's an important relationship for a provider to put in place. Um, and that's, that's my takeaway. I guess if I have a takeaway, um, to keep it, you know, insurance based, I would say that it's very important to have a standalone policy. Um, policies are going to cover so much more than you could imagine, including when someone makes a mistake and, uh, for some reason the systems go down, like there was, uh, an incident with, was it the, um, What's the administration that uh, is responsible for like aviation? FAA. Maybe the yeah. FAA. <laughs> they actually had a system failure. Everyone thought that they had been hacked and it was a system failure. That kind of thing is covered. You know, when your provider has a loss and for, you know, two days you can't use your systems because their systems are down. There's coverage for that for the time that you're down for, you know, depending on another business. Um, so, Ensure, first of all, that you're securing the fortress, you know, make sure you've got access controls, make sure that you are putting the uh, controls in place that help you on your end and then transfer the rest to insurance. Yeah, thank you. Uh, first and foremost, we appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Um, the takeaway I would give is we're talking about million dollar policy limits, separate policies. Don't confuse that with that it's crazy expensive. Um, sometimes it's hard to, you know, get the policy to, you know, especially if you're in the tech firm, you know, we, we have hurdles and underwriting hurdles to go through. The right agency can help you with that, but don't take that as, you know, it's gonna cost me as much as my work comp costs. It's gonna cost as much as my general liability costs. There are a lot of great cyber policies out there right now that are million dollar limits. that are less than $2,500. Um, it's a matter of getting it right is what it comes down to. But um, thanks again. We, we really appreciate the opportunity to come on. We're really happy to have you guys. Um, I guess if I had a takeaway, it would be don't try to lean on a half solution like, uh, like a warranty. Go through the process of, you know, protecting your fortress, but, you know, really identify where your posture is and where you want it to go. Um, and then do things the right way. Cause if yeah. you don't, you're going to get burnt down eventually. So thank you guys right. for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having us. 
signing out here. Bye, okay. everybody. Goodbye. Oh.